So there's, there's, a, there's a tension in that story that you might have picked up on that Brighton, I think, mentioned especially, or Giannis, whatever his name was. Giannis, yeah. The tension is that, that Jesus is so good. I mean, the Bible tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, that he is, he is the fullness of God in human flesh, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's our good shepherd. He is so, so good. And so the question is, if he's that good, then why did they want to kill him? I mean, he's that good. Why did he, why did he end up on a cross? How do those two things work? And, and I think about that because of today being Palm Sunday, the day where, where we traditionally celebrate Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. And a buzz about Jesus has been growing. It's been building. People are, are thinking that maybe he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for for all these years. They've been seeing the miracles. They've heard the stories. All that stuff that we saw in the Kaleo performance, right? The, 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 the healings, the, the raisings from the dead, all of that stuff. And so word is starting to spread. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem and these crowds gather together and they're, they're laying their cloaks on the ground for the donkey that's carrying Jesus to trample on them. This kind of patchwork, mismatched red carpet. People are cutting off branches from palm trees, the best trees, right? Like, man, if, if we had a yard that got more than 10 minutes of sunlight a year, I would, I would plant a palm tree. And they're cutting off branches from the palm trees. They're laying them out. They're singing songs. They're singing snippets from the Old Testament psalms. They're just, there's, it's euphoria. It's a party. I mean, they're, they're celebrating the, the fulfillment of their long frustrated hopes and dreams. That's, that's what's happening on Palm Sunday. And so how startling is it that one week later, the crowds again are gathered and they're cheering and they're chanting, but they're chanting for his, his death. I mean, I don't know if there's any overlap between the crowds. I don't know if the same people celebrated Palm Sunday and chanted for his crucifixion, but the extreme polar opposite kind of swing in momentum is, is shocking. And I think about that because of a story as well in the book of Acts. We've, we've been in the book of Acts as a church for well, a few months, but really for a couple of years. And we're, we're going to take a break and pick it up again in the fall. But today I want to pull out one more story from this, this book that I think speaks to the same kind of tension and dynamic we see. Now the book of Acts, if you don't know, is the record of the early church in the first couple of decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it's after everything that we saw here, a couple of decades after, tracking the incredible and, and really unlikely spread of the good news of Jesus around the ancient Roman world. And in this section, Paul is its kind of the main human character. Paul is a guy who was a persecutor of Christians. He was one of those guys who was angry about the good men doing good things, wanted to kill them, until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. His life was turned around. He ended up becoming one of the primary instruments of the spread of the good news in the ancient world. And so he's going from city to city, planting churches. He does this in a city called Ephesus. And Ephesus was one of the major cities in the Roman Empire. You see it there on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. Back then, it was the Roman province of Asia. And it was maybe the third biggest city in the empire. And Paul goes there, and he actually spends quite a bit of time there. He spends two and a half years there. 
You're maybe familiar with the concept of dog years, right? Where like one human year is like seven dog years. So if a dog lives to 15, you're like, whoa, he's like over 100 years old. That's like, I think Paul years where he stays are like dog years. You know, a lot of people, 20 years in one place, that would be a long time. You raise your kids there, you make it your home. Paul, two and a half years, that's an eternity for him. Nobody tried to kill him in two and a half years. Incredible. So he stays there a long time and his, his ministry has this huge impact. People are, are coming to faith in Jesus. They're experiencing healing. There are miraculous deeds. And, and Paul is teaching. Incredible things are happening to the point that there is, uh, we looked at last week, this grassroots book burning of magical scrolls worth $6 million because of the failed exorcism of some Jewish magicians. And if that sounds like a really random series of words and ideas, and you're like, I don't know how that makes sense. Read Acts 19 for yourself. It does make sense. But this, this is all happening. It's good stuff. Good things are happening in Ephesus. But once again, we see that old tension that whenever there is this advance of the kingdom of God, there's going to be a counter movement. We're in Acts 19, verses 21 to 41 this morning. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along, but it'll be on the screen too. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I just, I'm so filled with gratitude. Lord, you've already spoken to me. You've touched my heart, and I pray that you would do that for all our brothers and sisters here. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 19, verse 21. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades, and he said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Some of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. And they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, 
You ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Where was this guy in 2011 when the Canucks lost the Stanley Cup, hey? <laughs> Could have used this guy. <laughs> Talk some sense into some people. So, uh, so Paul's in Ephesus. This happens right near the end of his stay here. Again, incredible things are happening. People are leaving their old way of life behind to take up the new way, the way of Jesus. They are literally burning the scrolls of their old way. They're, they're metaphorically burning the bridges to their old way. They're, they're not just adding Jesus to their already established religious mix of devotion. They're going all in on Jesus. They're saying, we're not worshiping anyone else. We're all in on, on Jesus. This is not just a handful of people either. The, 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 the effect of this, the impact of this is felt by the whole city. Right, this is like, this is broad scale, wide sweeping cultural change that's taking place. Now some of you know that I'm a bit of a student of the history of revival in the church. And uh, I've, I've talked about this revival before, but it comes to mind again, the Welsh revival of the early 20th century. So um, this, this revival was, was really spurred on by, by prayer, by worship, by soft hearts. That's, that's how it happens, that's how that's how we make space for God to move. That's why we do the things we do as a church. That's why right now we've started a week of 24-7 prayer where we're creating this unbroken chain of prayer. Really encourage you to sign up for that. It's why we're, we're meeting together tonight at 6.30, tomorrow at 6.30, Wednesday at 6.30 for worship and for prayer because this is how you make space for God to move. And that's what was happening in Wales in the early 20th century. In one year, 100,000 Welsh came to faith in Jesus in a population of 2 million people. That would be something like in the next year, one year from now, we would see something like 10,000 new Christians in North Vancouver filling the churches. Can you imagine? Can you, like, it just blows my mind. That happened in Wales, early 20th century. And so the cultural change was massive. Taverns were closing because nobody wanted to go drink anymore. They just wanted to go worship God. Courts were closing because there was no crime to prosecute. And in the detail that is the most legendary and difficult to believe in some ways, and I've mentioned this before, but the, the work in the coal pits in Wales suffered because the horses didn't understand their owner's language anymore. They were used to getting yelled at and sworn at they didn't know what to do with the fruit of the spirit that was coming out of the mouths of their humans. <laughs> so, so I don't know if there's any record of this, but it's not hard to imagine the tavern owners in Wales, the unconverted tavern owners, kind of get ticked about this, right? Getting ticked about what God was doing and saying, hey, churches, you're stealing all our business. You know, like this, this would have been upsetting to them because when, when the gospel takes hold of a place, it inevitably transforms lives. It transforms the place. The status quo gets disturbed. And those who benefited from the status quo 
They become disturbed. That's what happened in Ephesus. The root of the trouble, as we saw, was a guy named Demetrius. Demetrius was a silversmith. He made these, um, it would seem he made these little silver replicas of the temple of Artemis. Artemis was a Greek goddess. Uh, in Latin, her name is Diana. That's where we get the name Diana from. She was, uh, she was associated with uh, fertility. That was illustrated in the way that she was portrayed. We'll just leave that uh, detail at that. Uh, she was also connected with protection. In mythology, she was the daughter of the Greek god Zeus. And, and she was, uh, her, her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This massive, massive complex. I read, I read one uh, scholar say that there was no other city that was so closely identified with a pagan god as Ephesus was with Artemis. These two went hand in hand, Ephesus and the worship of Artemis. So Demetrius and others, they would make these little silver shrines for people to bring to their homes. It was part tacky, touristy kitchen, part religious devotion, but they made a lot of money on this until... Until it started losing business. Because so many people were saying, we just want to worship Jesus. We don't want to do the Artemis thing anymore. And Demetrius sees that this is not going in a good direction for him. He sees that if this continues, he's going to be facing total financial collapse. So he gathers the other trades people around him. And he says to them, guys, we got we to do something about this. Because of money, right? We're getting less of it. We need to stop that. We need more money. And also, what about Artemis's feelings? She might be offended that people aren't worshiping her anymore, right? I think he was more worried about the first, frankly. But maybe there was some of the, the concern for the second too. He's persuasive. And he riles up the crowds. They're filled with fury. And now this fury spreads to the whole city. And now we've got a full-scale riot. And, and Paul misses out on the action. You know, Paul's always good for a, for a riot. You know, he's, he's always up for that, but he misses out on this one. Instead, two of his coworkers get dragged in. They're, they're thrust in front of, or they're, they're brought into this, this theater, this kind of public setting. Everybody's yelling and shouting. Luke makes an interesting uh, mention here. Verse 20, where is it? Verse he talks about how everybody comes together. 29, they rushed into the theater together. Now, more literally, that would be that they rushed into the theater with one accord, with one mind. That's the, the word Luke uses. And Luke often uses that word to describe good things, like the unity of the church in prayer. He says in Acts 1 that the church was of one mind, one accord in prayer. By the way, that's what we want to do this week. Did I mention that? We want, to, we want to be of one mind in prayer as a church, seeking him together. We really encourage you to, to participate with us in this. So that's usually how that, that language is used. Unity is, is a good thing, but it's not an unqualified good. Passion is not an unqualified good. We usually think that it is. We usually think that especially when those two things go together, when you are united about something with people that you're all passionate about, this is a good thing. Why wouldn't you want that? Sometimes it's not a good thing because you can be passionately united in bitterness. You can be passionately united in causes that stand against the kingdom of God. There's nothing to be commended about that. That's what's happening here. And, and the other thing about that kind of unity that doesn't line up with God's kingdom is that it's, un, it's an unstable unity. 
It often will collapse under the weight of its own self-contradictions. And that as well happens in Ephesus. They're all shouting and yelling, but there's confusion. Some people are shouting one thing. Other people are shouting another thing. The Jews in the crowd start to get a little bit nervous because they realize they're going to get lumped in with this. This Jesus guy, he, he was a Jew and, and a lot of his followers are Jewish and and if we're not careful here, we're going to be guilty by association. So they push Alexander to the front. But when people realize he's a Jew, all bets are off. New cause for unity, right? For the crowds. We don't want anybody who is a worshiper of Jesus. We don't want anybody who is a worshiper of, of Yahweh. We, we, we don't want anybody who's not a worshiper of Artemis. And so they shout in unison for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. By the way, you know, some people have this thing about repetition in modern worship, right? They'll be like, you would not believe it, guys. I went to a church and they sang this song for probably seven straight minutes. Seven minutes. And they sang the bridge. They repeated the bridge like, like five or six times. Like, can you believe? Until we sing a bridge for two hours in a row. I mean, we got nothing. We got nothing on Ephesus. These guys knew what repetition in worship was all about. Two straight hours. So Jaylene, hour and a half, you're good. Golden, awesome. There we go, song of response today. Um, so the city clerk stands up and he goes, guys, he just, he just dishes them some straight up cold hard logic. Guys, shut your mouths. <laughs> like everybody knows that Artemis is great. The temple's still standing. Paul's not, Paul's not running in there and, breaking things and smashing idols. And besides that, this whole thing you're doing, the rioting, it's not the, it's not the way we do things. We've got procedures for this. And the crowd, I think they're, pre they're pretty tired at this point. They're pretty drained. And they, uh, they disperse, crisis averted. What do we take from this story though? What do we, what do we learn from it? How, how, do we, how do we take this into our lives? There are two things that come to mind for me. One, the first one, is the inevitability of conflict when the gospel advances. This is kind of what we're talking about today. But when the gospel goes forward and begins changing things, there is always, always, always going to be conflict. And this is a lesson that I have had to learn. I continue to learn. I'm going I'm to still have to learn. It's a lesson that's difficult for me for a couple of reasons. Ever since I can remember, I struggle with conflict. I mean, just moment of vulnerability and honesty with you. Uh, I, I fear it. It makes, me, it makes me anxious. I hate the thought of somebody not liking me, not approving of me, rejecting me. I, I don't tend to get into fights. My default is to walk away. And then within that as well, if there is conflict, I assume often that it must be entirely my fault. Because that other person seems pretty sure that it is entirely my fault. They seem confident. They're probably right. It probably is entirely my fault. And so I, I kind of, uh, I, I fear it. I, I kind of stay away from it. Um, and, and you know, there's, there's some good things about saying sorry. I'm the quintessential Canadian, right? Apologizing for anything and everything. There's something good about that. Confession. Uh, owning up to things. That's how you restore relationships. Uh, I'd rather be on that end of the extreme than on the other end where you're itching for a fight and looking for any reason possible to punch someone in the face. You know, I'd rather be over here, but, but still to, to think that every conflict is my fault and needs to be avoided, that's, that's not healthy either. 
I could tell you a lot of stories about this, but, um, but one, one story, it's not the most extreme, but one story that comes to mind is because it was almost exactly four years ago that this, this began to happen. So the building project, which you are now enjoying the benefits of, uh, came under, well, it, it became known that we were doing this, this building project. Maybe just hold off on that slide just for, for a second. It, came, uh, it became clear that we were doing this, uh, this project. We didn't have to get the, the, pro the, the, the uh, property rezoned or anything like that because this property had hosted a church building for, for decades before already. So we didn't, have to, we didn't have to get it rezoned. It didn't have to come to the municipal council or anything like that, but we did have to get a building permit. And so the, the plans go out and all of a sudden there was this fury from some in our community that just could not believe that they hadn't been consulted earlier on. And so there was this outrage on social media. People started making all kinds of claims. Oh, this church wants to be open from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. seven days a week, which, I mean, men's group on Thursday morning starts at 6.30. So joke's on them. We're starting actually even earlier than, than that. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, you know, they're, they're saying, why isn't this, why isn't that old blue church, why isn't that a heritage building? I tell you, if you had spent 30 seconds in that building, you would not have had to ask that question. Uh, and they're, they're dragging local politicians into the mix. They're going, what are you going to do about this? Council person A, council person B. And so one of these, one of these uh, local politicians ended up calling me and was like, you got to do something about this. You've got to respond to this on Facebook. So I'm like, Alexander, I'm getting pushed in front of the crowd. You say something, you do something about this. And so I, I, went, I went and I, I made a couple of posts on social media. Now we can show that side. Uh, I, I made a couple of posts and I've never had so much attention given to me on social media before. Uh, and within that, I kind of explained what we were doing. But as you can see, the first thing I did was that I, I said, Sorry, basically, like, hey, we, we dropped the ball. We did something we shouldn't have done. We didn't consult you. And some of the people who were especially angry and opposed jumped on that. Like, look, even the pastor said they did something wrong. The pastor said they dropped the ball. Let's get them. You know, and it's just like this, like, social media pile up even more. But here's the thing. I don't think we actually did anything wrong. <laughs> We, we, we didn't do, we didn't, we didn't not do anything we were supposed to do. We didn't skirt around any responsibilities. We, we followed the process as it was laid out for us. And honestly, I, I wonder sometimes if we had sought community approval of the project, I don't, given the hostility we experienced then and, and in the years since, I don't know if it would have gotten built. I, I don't know if we would have seen the gospel blessings that we have seen in the years since. And, uh, and so I, I, I don't know, you know, I, I'm not sure I needed to apologize in that case. I, I think I should have just realized this kind of conflict is inevitable, that, that a lot of that hostility was directed at us, I think, because we're a church, because we wanted to plant this, this movement, this Jesus movement right here in Deep Cove. See, every time, every time the gospel advances, there is going to be pushback. Uh, you you got to expect it. You've got to be ready for it. Part of that is, is human. It's because the kingdom of God just doesn't jive with the ways of the world. It just doesn't. The kingdom of God is going to challenge and convict and transform. It's going to change. It doesn't fit perfectly with any human culture. There are always going to be things that the kingdom of God challenges. And people who have 
again, benefited from immorality, who have benefited from confusion. They're not going to take kindly to that. People who are, are saying, no, this is the only way that I'm going to live, and if God tells me another way, I'm going to fight against that, they're not going to take kindly to that. So there's that very human aspect. There's also a supernatural aspect to this. Revelation 12 pictures Satan like a dragon who is waiting for the Messiah to be born so that he can devour the child. And when that doesn't work, then the dragon decides he's going to try to devour the woman who gave birth to the child. I take that to be symbolic of, of the people of God. And so the dragon, if he can't get Jesus, he's going to come after the church. He's going to come after the people of Jesus. And, and he's, he's going because every time the gospel advances, he's, he's, losing, he's losing people, right? He wants to keep people in the darkness. He wants to keep people in bondage. He's going down. He wants to take as many people as possible. He does not like it when the good news is preached and when people come to life in Jesus. Uh, Revelation 12 says that he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Again, we have to expect this, anticipate this, be ready for this. As the gospel goes forward, there will be conflict. Inevitably, you can count on it. Someone like me, I want to take the path of least resistance. That often just isn't going to work. Paul told the early Christians in Acts 14, as he went through those churches, he said to them, we must go through many hardships, many afflictions to enter the kingdom of God. And so it's no surprise that as Paul was in Ephesus, preaching and teaching, that, that eventually there was going to be a riot. It's no surprise that Jesus, the king, the kingdom of God embodied, would eventually be hung on a cross, that that would be where that story ended up after Palm Sunday to Good Friday. It's, it's really no surprise. So that's the first thing I think we learn is that the gospel uh, will inevitably cause conflict when it comes up against the kingdoms of this world. But here, here's the second thing, and I think this is really important, which is how, how does the gospel go forward? How does that change and that transformation come to a place? And we can contrast that with how Demetrius and others tried to affect change in Ephesus. We can look at their motivation. What were they driven by? They were driven by fear. Fear of loss of money. Fear of loss of power. It was, it was all reactionary. You get this sense that it was just this like hurried, panicked, impulsive madness that gripped the crowds and drove them forward in frenzy. It was just this fearful, reactionary thing. And, and so they end up, you know, storming this public place and just chanting for hours until the authorities would give them what they were looking for. Now, that is probably not going to sound totally unfamiliar to you. Because it turns out that 2,000 years later human nature is still pretty much the same. And that's still how people respond to what feel like threats. I mean, we, we've seen it in the last few years with BLM and, and Antifa riots, pro-abortion rallies, LGBT activism, you know, storming, storming some public place, chanting for hours until the authorities give in, trying to exert that pressure from the top down. 
The tragic thing is that Christians have done the same. They've used that same approach, that fear-driven, reactionary, kind of pressuring from the top down. Christians haven't been very different over the last few years in a lot of cases. And that's tragic because gospel change in Acts in the New Testament happens very differently in a very different kind of way. What does Paul actually do in Ephesus? How does this come about? There's the miracles. There's the healing. There's also the teaching. And and listen to what we read about the teaching in Acts 19. He spoke boldly there, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. He had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He was arguing persuasively about what? About the kingdom of God. See, like the city clerk said, Paul was not, he wasn't going into the temple and smashing idols of Artemis. He wasn't even, according to him, Paul wasn't even blaspheming Artemis. That wasn't his, that wasn't his focus. That wasn't, that wasn't his concern. Paul was concerned to show people what the kingdom of God was like. To show people who Jesus is. Paul was concerned to, to, to instruct constructively to paint this compelling picture of a different way of life than what the people in Ephesus knew. I I mean, he obviously, wherever he went, he still spoke about, hey, you guys see this, you think this, you do this, let me show you another way. You still name that stuff. But Paul's concern especially was to say, here's here's an alternative, here's a better way. And he argues persuasively for that. And I see the same thing in the Gospels. That Jesus will once in a while implicitly critique Rome and sometimes very directly critique the Pharisees and other religious leaders. But the, the bulk of what Jesus teaches, the bulk of what, he, of what he communicates is about the kingdom of God. It's about who he is, about what he's come to do. Do you, do you see the difference? You see that? So much in our world today is about, is about tearing down. It's, it's about criticizing. It's about erasing. It's about canceling. It's about using all the political and cultural power at your disposal to accomplish that from the top down. It's top-down change mandated by the government. That's kind of a lot of what we see to tear things down. But, but that's not the gospel way. You don't see gospel change in Ephesus because the government mandates it top down. You see it coming when people's hearts are moved. See, it's bottom-up change fueled by heart change. That's what Jesus talks about in the parables. He says that the kingdom of God is is like seed being sown on the ground, and a lot of that ground isn't receptive to it. And so the seed doesn't really do a whole lot. But when the seed finds fertile soil, soft hearts, that's where you see a harvest that's where you see so much fruit abounding from that. He said the kingdom of God was like a small little mustard seed, unassuming, and yet it grows and it grows and it grows organically, naturally, until it's this huge plant that gives shelter to the birds of the air. He said the kingdom of God was like a, like a treasure hidden in a field and, and some guy stumbles on it and he, and he knows that this is what he wants more than anything else and so he sells everything he has to get that hidden treasure. You see, the kingdom of God is 
Again, bottom up, it's about filling willing hearts with the awe and the wonder of the goodness of Jesus. That's how the gospel advances. That's how it transforms lives. So what do you do about that today? Most of you are probably not going to go and start a riot today. Don't start one. You might cause one. Don't start one. But most of you aren't going to do that. That's probably not going to happen. And you're probably not going to be like the Apostle Paul, going and arguing and, and teaching persuasively and so on. That, that's a calling. Most of us don't have that calling. But you can contribute to the, the spreading of the good news of the goodness of Jesus. You can contribute to, to spreading this constructive vision in a world that's all about tearing down and erasing. You can share in this spreading of the compelling kingdom of God. You can invite people into things that we're doing even this week as a church. Our worship and prayer nights tonight, tomorrow, and Wednesday. Our Easter fair on Saturday. That's going to be an amazing time for people in our community to come in, get a glimpse of the good news, get to know our community a bit. Good Friday service on Friday at 11, uh, Easter Sunday. I mean, this week, there's a lot of stuff going on. Invite people into that. Bring people with you. You can share things online. Don't be one of those people who is just ranting and, 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 and tearing down. Build up, show people this is a better way to live. This is a better way to think. You know, share sermons, share, share verses that are encouraging, that are hopeful. You, you can invite people to come and watch uh, Jesus Revolution with you. It's an incredible movie. Or to watch The Chosen with you, an incredible show. Again, painting a, a beautiful, powerful picture of who Jesus is. And just in your words and your actions, you can show people there is a better way to live in this world than what is often on offer. Jesus is so, so good. He's so good that he died for you. That he died to pay the price for your sins. He's so good that he wants to reconcile you to God and to fill you with his Holy Spirit, to promise his presence with you as you go through this life. He is so, so good. And his goodness does provoke conflict and opposition. Don't let that stop you. Spread the good news. Do it this week. Join with us in prayer and worship. Join with us as we come together as a community to celebrate him. Invite others into that. Yeah? Okay, good. I'm glad some of you agree. That's great. We're, uh, I think the kids are going to lead us in a response. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do that one song again. Uh, and uh, so that's the plan. So Jesus, I thank you for this text from Acts and what it teaches us. Jesus, as, as we have been reminded through the Kaleo performance, through the, the songs today, and through this, this text even, you are good you are our good king. You give us life. And Lord, we know that in this world, as long as, long as we're still waiting for you to come back, that there is going to be 
conflict and opposition. We, we know that. So we pray that you would strengthen us, Lord. I pray that you would make us peacemakers. I pray that even in the midst of conflict, that we would represent your character, that we would be people of, of compassion, of grace, of love, of kindness. I pray that we would be people of hope, Lord, who are not dissuaded by the, by the hopelessness in this world but that we would continue to speak about the kingdom of God and about our King Jesus, who is so good that he died for us and rose again. We pray this in Jesus' name.